Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. In this episode, I am going to talk about question nine, discipleship question number nine, which is, what do I do when I'm not walking in the Spirit? I think that's how it's actually worded. Oh, when we get to the content, I'll know for sure. Um, A couple of announcements before we jump into that thing we always do. I want to remind you again that we do have some new apparel at the Faith Bookstore. We have t-shirts and crewnecks, perfect for this November weather. And uh, they're amazing. You should go buy them all. You should buy tons of them. (laughs) Why are you laughing? They should. (laughs) I guarantee it's the best Thinklings podcast crewneck you'll ever buy. Also, the only one that's ever been made available. It's about framing the discussion, Tim. It's All about right. Framing the discussion. I always tell Evan he's my favorite son, and he just—he's now old enough to look at me and be like, "I'm your only son, Dad." Like, I know you're my favorite. Yeah. Uh, Less cool. Good dad joke. Anyway, it's a good day. It's. Uh, we also, I believe, I'm gonna look at Tim as I say this for validation. In the month of November, we have a promotion on the book, The Four Loves. Four Loves is on sale this month. Yeah, and the reason it's on sale is because next podcast season, starting in January, we're going to read through, I mean, we're not going to read through it on the episode, but we're going to discuss it chapter by chapter on the podcast. So you might want to buy it and read it ahead of time. That might help you as you get to those episodes. With that announcement, we have some Thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. Let's talk about some books. So I'm going to go first. And... I have I, I have not read this book yet, but I'm just going to preview something I'm excited about. It's a it's it's when you like hear about something and you buy the book because you want to read the actual thing, like on someone else's recommendation, and it plays into something I'm working on for January. I'm going to be speaking in chapel in January. It is during the high school basketball tournament, so there'll be a bunch of high school basketball teams on campus. And uh, it's kind of a weird merging of things. Like I knew what I wanted to speak on in chapel. And then I found out that this is going to be a high school basketball tournament at our college. And then there's this book that I was interested in reading, which I had already ordered, which is about basketball. So I'm going to use it as an illustration. But what I think is super spicy about it is the title. The title of this book is called The Hicks from the Sticks. You're kidding. That's wonderful. The Hicks from the Sticks. That's a good title. It's uh, it's in reference to a very talented basketball team from the state of Missouri. And what's unique about them is that they were all Hicks from the Sticks. I never would have guessed. Yeah. So, wow. Um, anyway, so if you, you know, depending on when you're listening to this or, you know, if it's before January, uh, I think it's like the 20-somethingth. Um, if it's before I speak in chapel, you can be excited about going over to our website and finding that sermon at some point. Or if it's way past January, you're like, oh, I should go to faith.edu and look up that sermon and you'll find out more about it. But it's a book about basketball. It's a left field type of a book, but I'm excited to read it. It's it's biographical. So yeah. trying to get more info on the, the hicks from the sticks. 
That's entertaining. I have to always call the country the sticks now because I said something like they're from the sticks in some class. And I think it, well, there's a certain student who's like, you have to always call it that from now on because they're from the sticks and it was not offensive. It was like homey to them. They're like, yes, that's what it's called. It's also a famous band called, is it sticks? Yeah, the river though. That's different. That's not Hickville. That's the river separating the undead. Wait, is there is there a is there a band like S T Y X? Yeah, Sticks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, don't listen to them. Listen to Tim talk about his book. <laughs> so is your uh, book part of your bibliography for your demon project? I might slip it in there and just see if <laughs> see if my reader, Doctor Doug Brown, notices. That would be that would be pretty funny to slip that in there. Horrendous. It has nothing to do with my demon project. Wouldn't it be great though if in the book there's some interpretive issue that you can actually oh, cite brother. and you could actually oh, have it there yeah. for real? Hundred <laughs> percent. I remember citing uh, C.S. Lewis and uh, Paralandra in my dissertation, and they did not like that. You're citing a fiction book in your dissertation. I'm like, yes, but he's illustrating what I'm teaching. It's like. You're, but you're citing a fiction book in your dissertation. To be fair, this would not be a fiction I book. know, it'd be biographical. It You'd is. be up a notch. And, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right. Uh, so um, <clears throat> I read or listened to Moby Dick with my children this summer. And I took, uh, I've been wanting to do this one for a while. We finished it quite a while ago. But uh, Moby Dick was not what I thought it was. After going through, I, I did review this a little bit during the summer while we were going through it and how I did not like it. I did not like it because it was boring. It was not as much a story as it was a history of whaling. And after I did that review, one of our listeners contacted us, contacted me personally and said, yeah, that's what Moby Dick is. It's not, it, there is a fictional story to it, but he was using the fictional story to teach people about whaling and the the life of a whaler and uh, the life or biology of whales, which is why you have like a whole chapter where he's just kind of dissecting the body parts of the whale. So it's like from the, you know, 1800s as well. That's like that survival book I read where he tells the story and he's trying to teach people how to survive by this fictional story. He just ripped off Moby Dick. Sounds like it. But anyway, he has this whole history of whaling, the, the whaler's life in Nantucket you know, because it comes out of Nantucket. So there's this whole biographical section where he's talking about life in Nantucket and how there's the nicer places and the not so nice places. Life in the 1800s where he needs a place to stay and he doesn't have a lot of money. So he literally is like sharing a bed with this other guy and they're like, don't know each other at all, but it's cheaper. And it's a little weird. That sounds like a whale of a good time. Yeah, that's it's it got really weird in that scene. And I was good pun. listening to it with my kids too. So it's just kind of like yikes. Anyway. Get all the bad ideas out now. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I mean there's like the biology bio biological differences between the different whales. I didn't even know. But like the sperm whale, the right whale, and how they didn't hunt the blue whale or some of the other whales, and how some whales were too fast where they wouldn't be able to catch them. Uh so fascinating stuff. But when you're expecting just a story about Moby Dick, then well, um, let's see here. Yeah, so uh, the approval of whaling, you know, there's been these videos that have Moby Dick videos and stuff. And of course, our culture looks down on whaling so terribly. There is a little bit of that, but not a lot. Actually, it was very approving of whaling. Part of the history. What is the whalers done? The whalers are the ones that discovered the 
the the seas they're the ones that have gone out into these far-reaching places you know what's driving them there is the whales and they can get money for it so uh, it actually um is very approving of whaling uh, there are a couple of times where it's not so much but um they're great explorers talks about how they're great explorers uh, they took more than the oil i always just thought it was about the oil but it's not they took all kinds of parts of the whale um the the bones the bones would have been used in the cities even as uh construction material because the bones were so big um so anyway the there is this one old and diseased whale that they um that they killed and he talks about how his, he had pity upon this old and diseased whale. I mean, it was going to die anyway. And actually, it's a fascinating aspect of the story, I guess. I'll just leave it there. Uh, the, the book is not conservative. It's not, it's not like Christian, all right? It, it talks about Christian, and it, it talks about the... Um, it talks about the um, uh, Protestant, the Reformed person, but then you have this cannibal. And the guy... Um, the author, he just confuses the two. What's his name? Wait, 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 wait. Mel- hold on, hold on. Hold on. Wait, wait, can I? So we're talking about a book about whaling. It's and universalism. Then a, and then there's a cannibal, like a human cannibal? Yeah, there's a human, like, cannibal, cannibal. guy. Okay, and he meets up. He, he and the Protestant are best friends, and they go on this whole whaling adventure. They meet in Nantucket. Goodness, we're all getting our phones going off to pieces here. Anyway, so these two are um, like they sleep in the same bed together because they're poor and so they're saving money. And that's how they meet because they're in the hotel together, room together. And uh, he's got his uh, skulls and he goes around, he's selling uh, these skulls uh, in Nantucket. And the guy is like, You're not allowed to sell those on Sunday because it's Sunday. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, that, and and in the whole thing, he treats the cannibal as he's being no he's no different than the Protestant. So it's a very universalistic uh, message, uh, which I was really surprised about. So at least from like a religious perspective, and you know, there were a few times I was pausing it and talking to my kids about. It. I didn't expect this. I'm like, yeah, Dad, this thing's like wrong. I'm like, yeah, it is wrong. So there was that component of it. Um, another part that I noted it was that I didn't expect is that it's extremely bloody. Now I recognized, I knew blood was going to be a, like a big part of it, but but like the the whale as it's trying to swim away, there's like a trail of blood behind it, and he even talks about how much blood is in a whale, which is something I haven't even thought about, and how huge the whale's heart is. It's like there's this one whale; its heart was weighed like 250 pounds. The heart. I mean, they are just, it's like we just, it's just helped put in a proportion how wow. huge these, these animals are. And, and so, I mean, I guess I hadn't really ever thought through or whatever. And so, so he's talking about how the blood is just like everywhere. I mean, it is like disgusting. So, uh, that was another thing. The, and then the whole sharks printed going after the whales and so on. All right. And then, uh, the last point that I hit on here is, uh, just the, um, in the Bible. So there's like this one chapter where the preacher is preaching Jonah, Jonah one or two. And it's like the whole sermon. We were listening to it and it was like 30 or 40 minutes long. And so it was like, the kids are kind of like, come on, is this going to get over? The guy's not a good preacher. And, And then, you know, they have a whole chapter about white because it's a white whale. 
and you have the white horseman and revelation and the white this and the white that and they're allegorizing everything to do with white wow allegory city oh yeah and there's a whole chapter on it it's like long and the kids are just like so maybe i can't put hicks from the sticks in my bibliography But maybe I could cite Moby Dick. They've got like, there was this one chapter and it was like 50 minutes long. It was all about the different kind of sailors, you know, the Portuguese sailor and the Spanish sailor and the English sailor and the French sailor. And that chapter I skipped because they had a section on it with how the sailors treated young ladies as well. Oh yeah. And so, you know, this is not like a really kid-friendly book. So just kind of let you know that. I did not expect that. Um, But this was the unabridged edition of Moby Dick. And uh, if I put this on the Thinkling's Goodness scale, if you know what it is, history of whaling, I started to get into it a little bit more as I realized, okay, that's what he's doing. Um, and and so, I don't know, I'd probably give it like a two, uh, but it's not something, if I did it again, I would not read it with my kids. So, put an asterisk here. Andy, you've not read it. No. So, we need to read it. And I did listen to it. I did not read it. And then I think we need to have a discussion. Why is it regarded? Now, we're not going to have that's, it now. That's what I want to ask. Why is it regarded yes. as such a classic? Yeah, exactly. So maybe maybe that's a Dr. Boyd discussion as well. That would be a Dr. Boyd discussion. But I mean, you do have Ahab and how he is a ornery, you know, jerk. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the whale. And he is after that whale to kill that whale. And the, hmm. the whale kills everybody um, except for- Oh, Spoilers. The one, well, I think everybody knew that already. So wait, wait, wait. That's like ripping off the plot to Jaws. Or Jaws is ripping off the plot. This is all these books are ripping this book off. It's a classic. Why is it? Just like Harry Potter. (laughs) Whatever. Like if you had put down, like in the game, in the game (laughs) Balderdash, you're like, this is a story about cannibals and types of whales. I would never guess Moby Dick. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Huh. Okay. There you go. Okay, well, for for me this week, um, I've been doing a series on death this fall, and I thought it would be interesting to use one of my resources and look up some quotes on death. And so there's a book called The Quotable C.S. Lewis, and it's just quotes from C.S. Lewis's repertoire on various topics. Now, here's the thing. If Neil Postman were to raise from the grave and he saw this book, would he like it? Well, there's a bunch of -of out-of-context quotes, so I'm guessing he would have a problem with it. But it's a great tool if you've read. Neil would never even hear about this because he would be averse to podcasts. That's true. Yeah, <clears throat> I think so. Maybe I don't know. Well, I don't know. It's a long form discussion. He, he got on like the that. TV a time or two, and Did he criticized them. <laughs> it's like, well, the problem with this uh, television broadcast is that we've got to go on to a commercial in ten <laughs> seconds, and I can't put a sizable <laughs> argument together in that time. Well, I would say that. What's interesting about a tool like this is if you are a fan of a certain writer and some of their most important quotes are all in one place, it can be a nice, useful tool. But I thought it'd be interesting, since I'm doing a series on death, to see if there's any interesting quotations C.S. Lewis has on death. So I have about three quotes here I want to read, maybe four. So in The Problem of Pain, now The Problem of Pain is is sort of an apologetic argument um, dealing with the problem of evil. Uh, He says this, that some say that death ought not to be final and there ought to be a second chance. Now, what he's talking about here is the problem of the unevangelized who die without hearing the gospel, and now they have no chance to be saved. And so that was a problem back in Lewis's day. It was a philosophical issue dealt with in Christianity. And it's interesting how he deals with it. He says, I believe that if a million chances were likely to do good for a person, than they would have been given. 
but a master often knows, when boys and parents do not, that it is really useless to send a boy in for certain examinations again. Finality must come sometime, and it does not require a very robust faith to believe that omniscience knows when. I thought that was an interesting and spicy quotation. That okay, is really, oh, okay, you just said the word. When you read really that, good. I was like, okay, that's like an eight on the spicy scale. <laughs> oh, I like the spicy scale, yeah. This has it to is. do with discipleship and trials and God bringing trials into your life. Yeah, and it's, omniscience and providence. I thought that was right. really interesting. He tied a number of theological ideas together right there in a spicy quotation that not everyone's going to agree it's with. It's almost like he's so good at explaining things. I know. <laughs> it's like he's so intelligent. He really is. Great writer, probably, too. All right. He, I All bet right. if he wrote some fiction books, they'd be really fast. Oh, Speaking of fiction, I've got a quote from Screwtape Letters next. Better not put that in your bibliography. That's well, not acceptable. <laughs> so uh, the senior devil Screwtape is writing to the junior devil Wormwood. And the senior devil says this, How much better for us if all humans died in, a costly, in costly nursing homes amid doctors who lie, nurses who lie, friends who lie as we have trained them promising life to the dying encouraging the belief that sickness excuses every indulgence and even if our co-worker if our workers have done their job withholding all suggestion of a priest lest it should betray to the sick man his true condition whoa that's probably a nine on the spicy. That's yeah, pretty that's, spicy. That's really, you know, the sick, every indulgence. Yeah. And I thought that was the part that piqued my interest is yeah. when you are going through a really bad physical trial, I think we have the tendency to excuse sin Yeah, because we feel bad. And I think what he's saying is, yeah, that's actually a tactic of the devil. In fact, there's a Psalm, it's not coming to mind right now, but Spurgeon has a quote where he says, uh, it is no trouble when my trouble troubles me about my sin. And the point is that when you go through a trial and it causes you to think about your sin, that's actually a good thing. So it's mm. interesting. I thought that was interesting. So I'll just give you, I got like four or five more here, but uh, let's see here. One more. Oh, here we go. Uh, I'll give you two. These are short. Uh, when it comes to death, he wrote this in letters to an American lady. He says, there are then, aren't there, only three things we can do about death. Desire it, fear it, or ignore it. And that one I was not quite sure how to take. So when we think about death, do we desire it, do we fear it, or do we ignore it? I kind of wonder if that's a pre-Christian view of death. I don't think a Christian would desire to die. No. Except that Paul says to be absent with the body from the body is to be present with the Lord. Yeah, but still shouldn't be a desire. Death is the enemy. Yeah, death is the enemy. Now, it is interesting because he has a couple of quotations well, uh, what was the other one? Desire it? What was the other Desire one? it, fear it, or ignore it. Fear it or ignore it. Ignore yeah. it is what our culture does. But fear it, that might be a biblical response. Yeah. And that you acknowledge it for what it is. But I want to say acknowledge it. I think further definition of fear it needs it, to be placed. It's funny. He has a bunch of these I didn't want to go through because they're too long, where he actually points out that it's ironic that death is the last enemy but what is the means by which Christ secured us to be saved from the last enemy? It's death. And so death is both like a bad thing and then like the most awesome thing for us. Anyways, last quote, as Lewis was anticipating his wife's death, uh, one of his letters he wrote to a friend, he said this, uh, 
And I just thought this was good. So listener, if you're thinking about death or looming death, uh, Lewis was in that same position. His wife was dying. And he said to his friend, has God not promised to comfort those who mourn? And I thought that was a trusting answer that uh, if you're facing death or you know someone who's facing death, God has promised to comfort those people. And so that's probably a good thing for us to consider. And maybe you consider it now when no one's dying so that later you're armed with that spiritual truth later. Anyways, I thought it was good. So now I think a couple of those quotes, especially that second one, I would want more context and I'd want to know what he's meaning. But if you're a Lewis fan, quotable Lewis is a nice tool. Before we move on, just want to say, give a little bit of encouragement to our listeners. You know, God will comfort people. But what would be the means by which he comforts them? And there'd be a, a couple of good answers, like the word. Amen. And as the word were, the spirit would use the word to comfort them. That'd be like a personal, like I'm reading the Bible, the spirit is working in my heart type of a comfort. But uh, another primary means of comfort might be a person that maybe in the church, mm-hmm. you as a person would be comforted by other people and vice versa. That if you know someone going through death or a trial, that you might be the means by which uh, God comforts someone. And that is very biblical. Uh, maybe read Second Corinthians 1. But I think there's, a, there's an interesting context of Second Corinthians 1 um, that we're not going to get into. But anyway, so... Now, let's have a conversation about discipleship, an- another conversation. Our, well, it, it'd be, I think, maybe wrong to say our ninth, because I would say like all of these podcasts are discipleship. But specifically, referring to the 12 questions of discipleship, let's look at number nine. And as promised earlier, I did confirm what the question is. What do I do? So it's a personal, a first person. What do I do? when I'm not walking in the Spirit. And just to review, what are the previous questions in this section? Starting uh, question six, what are my trials revealing about me? And our answer was, trials reveal patterns of spirit or flesh control, or maybe an and, like you might have some really good spiritual patterns, but you have some really bad fleshly patterns. Then following that, question seven was, how do I know if I'm walking in the Spirit? And the answer is the fruit of God's spirit would be present in your life. You'd see patterns or instances of love and joy and peace, and hopefully that those are growing over time. And then question eight, if I'm not walking in the spirit, what am I walking in? So I'm trying to, my trials reveal these patterns of spirit or flesh control. Who's, who's controlling me? Who am I walking in? That's the metaphor. And so my trials revealing the spirit, what does that look like? Well, I'd see the fruit of the spirit. If I'm not seeing the fruit of the spirit, probably seeing a lot of evidence of the flesh. And so if I'm not walking in the spirit, what am I walking in? Very simple answer, the flesh, a very, very simple answer. So then, so you, so you've walked through that line of questioning and you've arrived at that answer. Well, I'm not walking in the spirit. What do I do? What do I do? And that's what this, this question is about. And um, we, we had a, uh, we alliterated it a while back, right? We talked about recognizing and I, I can't even remember the three R's. Remember. You know? And then Andy, Andy texted it to us a while back, but then the third one was responding mm-hmm. in obedience. 
And really that word respond is the key here. We want to talk about what a good response would be. What maybe what's the response that God desires of me when I realize that I'm walking in the flesh. I'll just pause for a quick moment and just say that this morning as I was driving to uh it wasn't really work, but it was work. It's the school. I was coming to get my laptop to do some work on my doctor of ministry project. It's very early in the morning. I was frustrated with how early in the morning it was. And that, yeah. And that, and that frustration, uh, bleed, uh, bleeded bled. We're talking more about blood. There you go. Moby Dick. Um, it bled into other arenas of my life. And as I was driving from my apartment to my office to get my laptop and then to the coffee shop, I started thinking, okay, what trials, you know, asking these questions of myself, what trials is God putting in your life right now? Okay, well, you're, you've got all this work you need to get done and that's schoolwork, work, work. There's relationships in your life that are frustrating you. And okay, what are these each revealing about your loves. So a very section one type of a discussion in my car this morning. And then I tried to get into section two. Okay. So here are some areas where you're seeing fleshly patterns. What are you going to do about that? I mean, my, this is making this really practical. You're in your car, you're thinking about this. It's like, well, what am I going to do? And, uh, in the chapter in the book that hopefully someday will be published and available, uh, I talk about how uh, if you're if you're around faith, we actually just gave an award to this guy, uh, Faithful Servant Award, John Saucer, and I don't think he even knows what podcasts are. Well, yeah, he does, but I don't think he listens to this. Um, but if you if you're listening to this, I love you. But uh, he would always say a response of faith has two steps, and it, it, it the illustration works really well. Two steps in the walk of faith. So like you're gonna put one foot down. Then you're going to put the other foot down. You're going to keep taking those two steps like you're walking, right? And so his two steps in the walk of faith are confession. And then with confession, you could put like a slash confession or cleansing. And depending on what side of the bed he woke up on, you know, he's going to really emphasize one of those. Um, and then so <laughs> it was confession and cleansing and or cleansing. So be like agreeing with God that my fleshly response is wrong, seeing my actions or my motives, my thoughts, my emotions, like all of those, like recognizing that those are wrong, like agreeing, like, and, and Lord, that is wrong. I was wrong. That's confession. And then right in that same breath, like, Lord, cleanse me, like through your word and with your spirit, restore like a very Psalm 51 type of a discussion. So that'd be like the first step is confession and cleansing. And then step two was communion. So now that you're cleansed of the fleshly influence, the spirit of God can now, you can commune with the Lord, fellowship with the Lord through the word and the spirit. And like, you actually can't have walking in the spirit, communion with the Holy Spirit, if you're still under the control of the spirit. So that dichotomy is really helpful. Cleansing or confession is a prerequisite to communion. And so there's, there's a really nice um, practical step there that you should always pray and try to have some reflection or confession before you go to read the Bible. It's like if you're under the fleshly, flesh's control and you're trying to seek God's will in the word, you might struggle with that. Like, I'm not getting anything out of this. Well, it could be because you're, there's a, 
uh, you know, some resistance happening there uh, because of your own sin. So anyway, uh, that's how uh, John would, would say it, confession and communion. And I like that. I, I've said that a lot. But what I found as I would e- explain this to students is that four words kept coming up over and over and over as I would explain what confession and communion would look like. And so I've actually transitioned from the two steps to the four words, <laughs> which is way less catchy, but I think it communicates the same idea with a little bit broader of a foundation. So uh, this is what we're going to do in the rest of the episode is we're going to talk about these four words. And I'm going to enlist the help of my cohorts here to help us think through these words. And uh, the chapter actually does have some more scripture reference to it. Uh, just by the nature of our conversation, we're probably not going to be turning to passages, but you know, sorry, if you really want that, shoot me an email. And uh, so word number one that I always like to talk about is yielding, yielding. So I'll throw the question out to Tim and Andy. When you hear the word yield, uh, what do you think of? And that could be answered in one of two ways. Like, do you have like any examples of yielding that have nothing to do with spiritual things in our world, in our culture, or like, what do you think of spiritually when you hear the word yield? What might that mean? So go ahead. We have the yield sign, the traffic sign. So as far as like the world and what we see there, so there's there, there is that. This is kind of interesting. The four words, are you familiar with the 10 words? No. The Ten Commandments are the Ten Words. Oh, that's nice. Mm-hmm. So I want to I want to start with that. That's the exact illustration I use in this chapter in the book. Is that when you're driving, there is a function called yielding, and there's imagine like a four way stop, and there's like actually rules of the road, like who has the right of way and who are you supposed to wait for and let them go first. Or there's some intersections that don't have stop signs at all; they just have yield signs where you're supposed to do what yield to the other person that's coming (laughs) what does that mean yeah you can't use the word if you're defining the word like what would give way to them describe the action of yielding give way to them let them go first Mm -hmm. yeah or like submit submit i'm thinking like in a fight i'm wondering if he wants the word submit (laughs) yeah well (laughs) i think there's actually a difference between yielding and Uh, submitting is submitting one of your other words it is oh so I think we we got there. So yielding, I think it's actually, when you see that word on the traffic sign, it is asking you to do a different action than stop. They're two different things. Stopping is stopping. Yielding, you might not stop unless you have to. Hmm. Right. You pull up to the intersection and you're supposed to think about, do I need to stop? That's what yielding is. Hmm. And so if you're noticing some fleshly patterns in your life, which, you know, obviously we know that a stop is necessary, I actually like the word yielding first, especially in discipleship, because you can use that idea to maybe prompt some thinking and you might gain some ground quicker than if you're like, don't do that, stop that. Because the stop that is very directed at external behavior. And we can actually train external behavior, and, but that's not all we're going for, right? We actually want a mindful response. Do I need to stop? Why do I need to stop? What's wrong about this? And you do that when you drive. Well, if I don't stop right now, 
I'm going to get hit by that car that's not stopping. They're definitely not stopping. They're going like 50 mile an hour. And if I don't, I'm going to get smacked into and that. We don't want that. And there's actually a, a mindful quality to yielding that I, why I really like that word and the illustration. So bridge that into a spiritual idea. What might yielding to the spirit look like? Spiritually. And yes, we're not, we're not too stopping yet. It's really challenging to think through, but there's, if you're thinking about driving as in like, I, the driver control the car, then yielding in this illustration might be like, am I going to keep piloting this car and steering it? Or do I need to let someone else do the steering like the Holy spirit? But I don't know if that's like metaphorically missing the point here. Like Jesus, take the wheel. Yeah. No. Yeah. Carry underwood, baby. Oh my word. <laughs> Horrendous. But the okay, point is like so when it comes to your will, Am I going to, am I living my will or am I letting the spirit? So you, we could, we could go down that, that road of thinking. Oh, good job. Uh, two points. They're actually uh, there. I don't know if they still use this, but in driver education, there are cars that have two braking and yeah. acceleration systems. And like, so like someone reason, like the driver's ed instructor could reasonably steer the car or stop the car. And so that, that's an interesting illustration, hmm. but the more intricate an illustration gets, the easier it is to break it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're not going on that. So this, this is like, you know, all illustrations are imperfect. But I think what I would say is slowing down to think about the laws of the road. Mm-hmm. And so why yielding might be important is you're trying to slow down before you impulsively act and ask yourself, what is the way of truth and wisdom here? Try to think about the word of God. It's like what I want to do right now, what I'm thinking about right now, what I'm maybe actually in the pursuit of, I'm doing things, I'm saying things. Is this the path of wisdom? Like to slow down and consider your actions, consider your ways. Um, And I, I think that's valuable. And of course, if you've already recognized that you're not walking in the spirit, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you already know what you're doing is wrong. Probably there's probably there's there's recognition happening, but to I think this first word just communicates a mindfulness of you know wh- where am I going? What is the right path here? And that's going to lead to kind of the idea that Andy that you were talking about is like you need you need to give up control of the car, uh, and that's where the illustration breaks down where it's like you know Jesus take the wheel. Well, we're you know anyway uh, that's where we get to. Uh, we will get to submission, but there's another word before that. So I usually like to talk about yielding, which is like slowing down, thinking about, do I need to let the other person go? That's the driving illustration. Like, do I need to let the spirit go? Do I need, do, do I need to let the word like have a factor here? It encourages like, the person to think. And that's really a good yeah. thing. So the word that follows that. So if you start asking questions like, do I need to slow down? Am I, am I heading in a direction I shouldn't be heading? You know, do I need to let someone else drive this vehicle, you know, to use our illustration? Uh, and you recognize in that line of thought, like, yeah, I'm out of control. I'm, you know, I need help here. Uh, that's where we get to this next word. Humbling. Humbling. And 
there's a couple of senses in some of the passages that we've referenced before where this it is translated humble in English, but has maybe some different connotation to it. For example, in Deuteronomy 8, it says he led the people of Israel through the wilderness to humble them. And so you got to think, through who's the subject there? God is the subject doing the humbling. And the, the way I would actually, if I could change a translation, I like the word humble is there because the word humble comes up in James again. So it's a nice cross-reference but it's intentional affliction. It's actually not a reference there in Deuteronomy 8 to their personal humbling. Like they are bringing themselves low. God is lowering them. And hopefully those things go together. Like when God is attempting to afflict you, that you agree with him and you let yourself be afflicted or you, you, you make yourself low. Um, and we have a perfect example of that in Christ who humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's perfect submission to the Father. Don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Um, but so when, when you guys think of humbling, what, what actions might accompany humbling or what, what might um, someone humbling themselves look like? How will you, would you describe that spiritually, practically in our lives? There's a lot of conversation uh, about, hey, you need to be humble. And most people respond and they're like, yeah, you're right. I do. And that's often where it ends. <laughs> um, but I think the scriptures actually give us some very practical ways to grow in humility. Uh, one of those ways is to actually think through and to meditate upon who God is and who you are. These are very theological things. And as even um, Thinkling Stearns was talking about in his quotes and death quotes and stuff. <laughs> but um, thinking through, well, what am I? Well, I'm somebody that's alive and I'm going to die. And who is God? And exalting him for who he is and that he is immortal. He is invisible. We see this in Isaiah chapter two. You have the direct con uh, comparison in the exaltation of God and the humiliation of man. So one way I believe that we can grow in humility is we need to draw close to God. In drawing close to God and remembering who he is, we then grow in humility, recognizing who we really are. I think the main thing that comes up in my mind is in line with what Dr. Little's saying. You're recognizing your true height, as it were. So God is far above us, but when I'm doing my own thing, I'm occupying the place of God. And so humbling myself is coming down to my position as a servant and a creature who ought to be living for a God. So that's what I think of. I don't know if that's what you're going for. No. Yeah. That's so we've, we've been very um, God centered in our, in our definition. What might humility look like amongst people? You're saying we can't say submit. Because that's the next yeah, word. So well, I, I feel a little, little bit limited. I think here. you can still use the word even humility and humble yourself before others. I think you can humble yourself to self. someone mm -hmm. and you're actually not submitting to them. Like, I think there's something you would do. It's mm -hmm. not necessarily an act of submission to that person, but it is an act of humility. Because you don't need to hmm. help that person or serve that person. You have no, um, they have no authority over you 
and that it's not like a submitting to them in obedience. But I don't know if the semantic range of submission can also apply yeah. to not just direct well, the, roles. These words are all very connected uh -huh, in, okay. in their spiritual influence. But I see what your, I think your emphasis so might be. What I would say is like, okay, so you've, maybe you, you've not been walking in the spirit. And uh, we'll use an example of marriage because then it clearly doesn't apply to me, right? Because I'm not married. So uh, a spouse walking in the flesh You're horrendous. does something to their spouse that they shouldn't have done. What might humility look like between the, the, the spouses? I see. And, and, and in marriage, there is an aspect of submission. But then let's say it's like your coworker. You're not necessarily submitting to them when you say, hey, I was wrong. Hmm. Will you forgive me? <laughs> but you are humbling yourself. You're, you're okay. you know, you, God brought a trial into your life, which was conflict with a person and you responded fleshly. And then the way that you humble yourself is to actually, you would start by confessing to the Lord, like, yeah, God, that was wrong. But then you also have this earthly responsibility, which would be to seek reconciliation and to go to the person and say, you know what, when I said that, when I did that, that was wrong. Will you forgive me? And so I think, I think that, that right there, a, a confession or an apology is implicitly an act of humility if to, for it to be genuine, hmm. uh, where you're, you're, you're not looking at yourself as high, like I, what I did was right. You're bringing yourself low to your proper height mm -hmm. where you're like, no, I was wrong. <laughs> so I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Um, so we got to keep moving because this episode's getting really long, really quick. So the word that we've given a lot of airtime to already, submission, um, and uh, this is slightly different. There's a lot of overlap, but the the picture I like here is I don't know if this is in the book or not, but um, it's like you got a gun pointed at someone, <laughs> and like to lay down the gun, like to lay down the right, you know, like to to give something up freely. Uh, an act of the will to submit, to to have a desire that you want, but then to not act upon and actually give up your own desire uh, for someone else or for something else, to submit to it. And uh, especially when we're talking about submitting to the Holy Spirit, which would be, you know, I, I would say you can't walk in the Spirit, be controlled by the Spirit, if you're not in submission, and this came up in a class the other day, someone said, well, you need to submit to the Holy Spirit. And uh, that could be a really ambiguous conversation, right? Yep. So how would we clearly define what submission to the Holy Spirit would be? It's got to be God's word. Absolutely. It's got to be God's word. It can word. be no less than obeying the word of God. Otherwise, it's, it's whatever anyone thinks the Spirit says to them. Yeah. And, and we would deny that. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you, you, you recognize you're not walking in the spirit and you're trying to yield to the spirit and humble yourself to the word of God, what would be a very clear step of submission for you? What does the word of God tell me to do? And then you do it. Now, again, we're not after external conformity to a list of rights and wrongs. Your affections are very important in this discussion, but uh, submitting to the Holy Spirit is no less than doing what the Word of God has told you to do. And so um, I think that one's pretty self-explanatory, but I'm going to submit 
from what I want to do, which is maybe an error. My, my flesh will never want me to do what the word of God tells me to do um, unless the flesh in some way thinks it's going to benefit from it, like a selfish desire, something like that. Um, so I think submission is a great word to talk about. But then it all kind of comes down to there, there's one of the four words here that I would say really uh, kind of encapsulates all the other three. So if you could describe an action of yielding, humbling, and submitting in one biblical word, what word would you choose? Oh, oh I was just going to do Shema. Mm. Obey. I got a different one. Obeys. Okay, you're on. I wouldn't use that one. I would say obey after you've not been disobeying, meaning you have to turn from the one to the other. So if there's only a word that meant to turn from one thing to another, is there any words like that? <laughs> you know, that's a great question. Like you, you want to pent, but after you've already done, like you need to do it. You got to re- repent there. I like that. Yeah. So yeah, repentance Tim is the over word. over there is groaning a and painstaking uh, dialogue there. But yeah, the last word is repentance. I would put all of those other descriptions, those other words uh, and again, there's a lot of overlap here. There's passages that describe this, but maybe don't use one of these exact English words, but we're talking about a response and, and what would ultimately be the response that I need to take when I'm not walking in the spirit. I would need to turn around and that turning would involve a yielding, a mindfulness to think like, hey, well, do I need to slow down? Do I need to stop here? Like what's going on? Like, am I following the path of wisdom and truth? And you realize, no, I'm not. So, okay, you need to admit to yourself, to the Lord, maybe to people you sin against. Yeah, I'm wrong. You need to humble yourself and admit that what you're doing is incorrect. It's error. And you need to submit to God's word. And all of that process of recognition and and turning, repenting, and then responding with obedience. There's our three R's, the alliteration. Um, All of that would be the response that you need to take. And uh, as we progress with the questions, there's actually a a really important reason why that response is vital. And it comes back to the role that the Holy Spirit through the Word of God plays in our lives. If we don't train ourselves to respond properly, something stops. When I'm under the control of my flesh, there is zero transformation of my character. There's actually a worsening of my character if I allow the flesh to control my, me over time. You know, like hanging on the side of a mountain, I'm not neutral. I don't just like stay in the same spot. I will grow more corrupt if I allow the flesh to control more areas of my life. And the inverse is true. I want the Holy Spirit to be the one in control so that I'm progressing in my sanctification. If I'm not yielded or humbled or submitted to the Spirit of God, I'm not becoming more like Christ. And so really, I think there's a responsibility for believers daily to ask themselves, you know, am I, contr- am I walking by the Spirit right now? Is He in control? Am I obeying the Word of God? And when I'm not, I want to turn around so that He can be in control, so that I will be changing. And uh, like I said, section three, we're going to really dive into why that transformation is so important in ministry, that that's actually the quality that Paul, I think, had his whole confidence in, was that God was doing something in him that was demonstrating who Christ was, and that that vital 
aspect of his ministry was his transformed character. Um, and he, he knew if he didn't have that, everything he said was kind of hollow. Uh, so we're going to get into that in other episodes. But I hope you've been blessed by this. I uh, hope that these questions help you think through your own sanctification. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next week on the podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.